13 through 17. Romans chapter 8. I'll be reading out of the NIV 2011 with uh, just one change of wording where I go back to the 84, which is more literal. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, that's very likely a reference to the children of Israel being led through the wilderness by the cloud and the pillar of fire. Paul has the, the Old Testament in his mind all the time while he's writing. And you can see evidence in Romans of how he's relating back to what's happened in the Old Testament, sharing it with us. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Today we're seeking to know what it means to be led by the Spirit and how to experience it. When I was a wet-behind-the-ears, totally inexperienced new pastor, I attended a denominational seminar for all the wet-behind-the-ears, inexperienced pastors who had just been credentialed. One of the speakers at the seminar was a well-known pastor from our denomination. He had the, the district's largest church, had successfully planted five other churches, and in those days, back before the megachurch era, he was the paragon of ecclesiastical success. This pastor was not at all like me. Uh, he was experienced. He was full of confidence, maybe even a little audacious. He was charismatic. He was chock full of leadership ability. He was my antithesis, my opposite. But after the seminar, I, and I'm pretty sure I wasn't the only one, I thought that I needed to be like him. He told stories that day, and he gave us advice, and the advice seemed to amount to, you need to be like me. In one of his stories, he told us about how he was driving somewhere outside the city and was uh, passing this very impressive mansion. It had this long, sweeping curve in the driveway, and it looked like it might belong to some movie star or some famous person. So he drove by. He said he, he felt the Holy Spirit speaking to him. Go talk to the person who lives there. So he wheeled the car around, drove up the long sweeping drive, parked in front of the pillared entrance, and rang the bell, and the woman of the house answered. And within a few minutes, he had led her to saving faith in Christ. It's going on four decades since I heard that story. And I still remember it. Obviously, it made an impression with me. Here was an example of how the Holy Spirit leads people. He leads them on the spur of the moment to do daring, outside-the-box kinds of things. Now, that works out great for guys who are full of confidence, a little audacious, charismatic. But for guys like me, that's pretty intimidating. And, and how 
Did he know that the impulse to go to that house was from the Holy Spirit, not just his imagination? What if he'd felt a similar impulse to hop on a plane and fly to L.A.? Would that also be the Holy Spirit? I've learned a lot about how the Holy Spirit leads people since then. And I am quite sure now that the Spirit does lead people to ring mansion doorbells sometimes and take spur-of-the-moment flights to L.A. But I've also learned the Spirit leads people in ways that conform to the personality and wiring God gave them. Think of it this way. The Church of Christ is like a vast orchestra made up of billions of people. Some are like timpani, some are like triangles. Some are like tubas and some are like piccolos. Some are like the double bass, some are like the violin. They're not all handled in the same way. A musician doesn't blow on the double bass and doesn't draw a bow over the tuba. He values each instrument for what it is and he handles it in a way that brings out the most that it has to give. That's also how the Spirit handles us. He doesn't violate the personality God gave us. Instead, he brings it out. He causes it to reach its potential. God did not make us alike. Nor does he intend us all to behave in exactly the same ways. When the Spirit leads a person, his or her unique personality doesn't disappear. It comes into sharper focus. Don't let anyone tell you that because the Spirit led them in a certain way, the Spirit must also lead you in that way. Don't let people tell you, as some have tried to tell me, that the Spirit must lead you to speak in tongues or never speak in tongues. Be emotional or be intellectual or be loud or be silent. That's like saying all musicians must use a bow or that the violist isn't a real violist unless she plays with sticks. Okay. So I've just said don't let anyone tell you the Spirit leads everyone in the same ways. Now I intend to walk that statement back, at least a little. The Spirit's like the most talented musician in the universe who brings each instrument's unique uh, abilities and attributes out in very individual and beautiful ways. But all the instruments, so all the millions or billions of us who belong to Christ who make up the orchestra play from the same score. The violins will play different notes in that score than the violas, which will play different notes than the flutes, but they're all going to follow the same score. So while we should expect a great deal of variety and uniqueness in the way the Spirit leads Christ's people, we should expect there to be some constants as well, just as the instruments in an orchestra play different notes, but, but in the same keys. One of the keys if you will, in which the Spirit leads the whole orchestra is found in verse 13. But let's include the verses on either side to get context. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. Literally, we are debtors. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Occasionally people tell me how the Spirit has led him or her to do something. Sometimes something audacious or miraculous or remarkable. And sometimes I believe that person. And frankly, sometimes I don't. 
Sometimes I'm skeptical. I tend to believe people I know are being led by the Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body. If that's not happening in a person's life, it casts doubt on other claims that the Spirit is leading. If the Spirit's not leading a person to put to death the misdeeds of the body, it's difficult to believe the Spirit is leading that person in other things. The phrase the NIV translates as misdeeds of the body in Greek is the praxis of the body. Praxis is a Greek word that's come over into English, often in business circles. And it means an accepted practice or custom, a way of doing things. Practice refers to behaviors, in this case, that have become, through repetition, habit. They're the behaviors we perform without much thought. The practices we've accepted that are just the way we are. They're ingrained in our bodies so that we rarely think about them, at least not until after we've done them. As our praxis becomes aligned to the Spirit, living for Christ feels right and even natural. When it's aligned with the flesh, the praxis of the body will be the locus of sin in our lives, and living for Christ will seem impossibly difficult. We'll think it's just unfair that God wants us to live this way. When Paul refers to those led by the Spirit, he is not thinking about going up to the door of a mansion and ringing the doorbell on the spur of the moment. He's still thinking about what he has just said about those who put to death the praxis of the body. The Spirit leads Christ's people to put to death the habits ingrained in their bodies that prevent them from living for Christ in his kingdom. Well, then, is living the Christian life just a matter of habit? No, it's more than that. But habit is important. The word comes from Latin habitus and means dress or clothing. Habit is the clothing that character wears. And God cares a great deal about character. In fact, it's where he's chiefly at work in our lives. The kind of character that we're forming, and everyone is forming some kind of character. The kind of character we form will either benefit us greatly in living for Christ, or it will seriously thwart us in living for Christ. What does it look like for a person to be led by the Spirit? On the most basic level, it looks like a knowledgeable, intentional, and persistent campaign to remove ingrained habits of sinful behavior from our lives. Being led by the Spirit involves more than that. We're going to talk about that. But it never involves less than that. It can be knocking on the mansion door. But it will be putting to death the anger praxis or the gossip praxis. The sons of God and all of us belong to Christ, who belong to Christ, are sons in this sense, whatever our gender is. And if that doesn't make sense to you, come to Go Deep on Wednesday night over at Big B Coffee, because we're going to talk about that. All of us who are led by the Spirit are led to put to death the sinful practices that are ingrained in the body. But that's only the beginning. 
The Spirit also helps us with our fears. Look at verse 15. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, or slaves again to fear. And that also is almost certainly an allusion back to the Exodus story, which is in Paul's mind. Remember that the children of Israel were, while they were being led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, were repeatedly tempted to return back to slavery in Egypt. So when Paul writes, the spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves again to fear, that's what's in his mind. If there's anything clear in the Bible, it's this. God does not want his children to be afraid. Fear was the first symptom of Adam's sin, and it's been the wasting disease of his race. Fear always makes sin look necessary. So when God comes to his people, he's always saying, don't be afraid. To Abram, God said, don't be afraid. This is Genesis 15. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. To Hagar, don't be afraid. God has heard. To Moses, don't be afraid of him, his enemy. To Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. To Gideon, don't be afraid. You're not going to die. To David, to Jehoshaphat, to Israel, to Daniel, to Joseph, to the disciples again and again and again. To Paul, God gives assurances, encouragements, and promises to help. He tells them, don't be afraid. He doesn't want his children to be afraid. And so he gives them his spirit. To the degree that we are led by the spirit, to that degree we'll be freed from fear. Many of us have family and friends that we want to, to believe in Jesus. One of the most compelling things you can do if you have family and friends who don't believe in Jesus now is overcome your fears. When St. Peter instructed his readers to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asked the question for the reason that they have hope. Why do you have this hope? Be ready to give an answer. He prefaces that with a quotation from Isaiah. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Always be ready to give an answer. Your fearlessness prepares people for hearing the answer that you have to give. In fact, seeing your fearlessness when they're afraid is what makes them ask the question in the first place. Fearlessness is more persuasive than words can ever be. Fearlessness underlines your words about Christ, but fearfulness undermines them. You can talk about Christ, but when you're full of fear, people aren't going to hear it. One reason the Spirit conquers our fears is that he is the Spirit that brought about our adoption to sonship. The Greek is simpler, the spirit of adoption, or the spirit of sonship. We'll talk about that at Go Deep, too. Because adoption in the first century was not what adoption is now. It was something a little bit different. Paul goes on to say that by the Spirit, we cry to God, Abba, Father, the Spirit takes away our fears by assuring us that we're God's children. 
When I know that I'm God's own child for whom he takes responsibility, I can relax. I can overcome my fears. This is verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This assurance that we are God's children is priceless. To know that the powerful, unimaginably intelligent being who created the physical cosmos and who loves with single-minded and tenacious devotion is my father, my Abba, will assuage my fears. In the storms of life, in relationship troubles, health problems, financial setbacks, knowing that this God, the God of Jesus, is my Abba, changes everything. And it's the Spirit who assures us of that. Now, it needs to be said that this assurance is not automatic. A person can have the Spirit, I think, be a genuine believer in Jesus, and still miss the assurance. And missing this assurance is just a guarantee for bad things to happen. It's the people who are being led by the Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body, who know that God is their Abba, who are being released from their fears. Live verse 13, you experience verse 16. But if you're not within earshot of the Spirit's voice when he says, put to death this misdeed of the body, you'll also be too far away to hear the Spirit when he says, you are God's own child. Sometimes people think that they can get that assurance some other way. They can get it through an experience, like speaking in tongues or being slain in the Spirit or knocking on the door of a mansion. But even when that experience is legitimate and is sincere and is beautiful, it can never be a substitute for the regular practice of following the Spirit's leading. I have one more point. If you have the Spirit of God, you are God's heir and Jesus' co-heir. And that means, among other things, that you now have resources for living the life God's called you to, the sometimes dangerous, hard, loving, rich life. You have everything you need for life and godliness, as St. Peter put it. And you can count on it. Going into any situation, you can count on the fact that you will have what you need. That'll help you conquer your fears. I'm going into this situation tomorrow. But the God of Jesus is my Abba, and I have what I need. See, you aren't just anybody. You're Christ's body. You'll have what you need. Lots of people don't know that. And they live in fear. I haven't always known that, and sometimes I still forget it. Growing up the youngest son of a barber born on the wrong side of a Rust Belt city, I thought that CCR, Creedence Clearwater Revival song, Fortunate Son, was written for me. It ain't me, it ain't me, I ain't no millionaire's son. No, it ain't me, it ain't me, I ain't no fortunate one. 
I couldn't have been more wrong. I am the child of the one to whom everything belongs. I am the fortunate one. I have everything I need to do everything my Lord requires of me at every time. But it's not just about having what you need for today. It's about having more than you can imagine forever. While we are heirs now, we haven't yet come into our inheritance. See, the Spirit is leading through the wilderness that includes the misdeeds of the body into the promised land. Paul turns next in verse 18 to the glory that awaits the children of God. But more about that next time. For now, let me apply. And I'll start with verse 13. There's a warning here, and we'd be fools to ignore it. And yet people do. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Calvinists and Arminian theologians, they don't often agree on how to take things, including the warning here. But they do agree on this. They all agree that we better take this seriously. If we live according to the flesh, if that's what defines us, we will die. Holiness is not optional for the Christian. As the Bible says elsewhere, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Here's a second application point. The spiritual life is neither entirely up to you nor entirely up to the Spirit. It is a cooperative effort by God's design. The Spirit leads us, but we put to death the misdeeds of the body. The Spirit testifies, but we cry, Abba, Father. Holiness is not and never will be achieved by our unaided efforts by guilt-ridden moralism or by hard-nosed legalism, nor is it realized by letting go and letting God, as if it were entirely passive. Yes, the Spirit leads, but we must follow. The Spirit commands, but we must say yes. If we do nothing, we can expect nothing. As Dallas Willard, referring to John 15, 5, like to say, it's true that apart from Christ, I can do nothing. But if I do nothing, it'll certainly be apart from Christ. What's the next thing God's given you to do? If you know, don't wait for the Spirit's leading. He is leading, that's why you know. Get busy, and God will help you. And with it, all those things we've been talking about. Next, some Christians seem to find their assurance of salvation in their feelings. And so they feel safe today, but they feel lost tomorrow. Other Christians have their assurance of salvation set on the cold, hard facts of theological argument. In this passage, the basis of assurance is not really in view. But we have seen it in other passages. The basis of assurance is this, and it's only this. Christ died for us. 
What's in view in this passage is the context in which people experience that assurance. The context in which theological arguments have force and feelings are fervent. Assurance is given to those who are led by the Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Finally, we can assume that this blessed assurance is a blessing that we enjoy when everything's going well, when uncertainty has been dispelled. Don't we hate that? When we feel good about ourselves and about our place in God's kingdom, when we've heard a great sermon and we just want to cry, Abba, Father. But think about when Jesus cried, Abba, Father. Was it only when life was going well, when the crowds were gathering and his popularity was soaring? Was it when success was on the horizon and he was feeling good about himself? No, he cried, Abba, when disaster was on the horizon and the shadow of the cross fell on him in Gethsemane, when his close friend betrayed him and his other friends deserted him and the world called him a fraud and a loser, but he cried, Abba. Assurance isn't just for the good times, but for all times, and especially for this time. All right, let's pray. God, I pray for those of us who are here and struggling with that, not feeling assured at all that that we belong to you. Lord, would you take what, what we've heard today and help them through that? We trust you because you're so good to do that, and you love your children. Lord, some of us have had more experience of your assurance, but have not been confident that we have what we need for what's coming next. God, would you dispel our fears? Would you put it in our hearts, that desire never to be afraid again in that way? And to find our confidence in you. And Lord, if there's somebody here who has never come across and come to your side, never trusted Jesus and confessed him, Lord, we pray that you'll work there too and help them come to that place, even today in Jesus' Jesus' name.